judges it's telling of all the uh, the inhabitants of Canaan that the Israelites drove out. And in, um, in verse 23 of chapter 1, it says, um, verse 27, it says, However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblaim or and its in its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. And it came to pass when when Israel was strong, they put the Canaanites under tribute, but did not completely drive them out. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. So the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Nor did Zebulon drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Neholal. So the Canaanites dwelt among them and were put under tribute. And it just keeps going on saying the same thing over and over. And it says they put them under tribute, but they did not utterly drive them out. Amen. What do you think that means? What does it mean to put someone under tribute? It means that you make them part of your taxation plan. That in short, you say, I'm going to make you pay me something, but I'm going to allow you to continue to exist in this region. And that's a, an image. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10 says these things were written down for our example. And that's an image of... This willingness to recognize I've got a problem and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to charge tribute from this problem but I am not going to utterly and finally annihilate it. And there's a lot of reasons why someone would come short of utterly and finally expelling their failure, their stubbornness, their perspective their lies, their doubts, their fears. There's a lot of reasons. But I think that one major reason is that we subconsciously make a bargain with God. And by that I mean that we think God is saying surrender, humble yourself, Fall on the rock and be broken. Live bowed before the Lord because if you do, He's promised to give you better things than if you don't. And so our self-interest prompts us to make this deal. We're all accustomed to having short-term pain for long-term gain, right? Yes, sir. We all strap ourselves from time to time with a short-term burden in order to reap a big harvest. And so we assume that that's what God is promoting. That's what he's selling when he tells us to surrender, to humble ourselves, to fall on the rock and be broken. And we fail to recognize that self 
is still in the driver's seat. Amen. It is still the one for whom the surrender is done. The surrender is, is, is offered. Do you follow? Yes. So it is still doing something that is ultimately about and for self. Now, if self is at the center, can it be repentance, whatever we call it? Can it truly be surrendered, whatever we call it? Can it be anything except an attempt to use counterintuitive godly means to achieve selfish ends yet again? And so when this person, when he makes this deal or she makes this deal with God, I want to ask you, how likely do you feel like it is that their flesh is going to be amply satisfied by the deal struck for self in that manner? How likely is that? Not likely. Not likely at all. In short, they're going to constantly be feeling cheated, robbed, shortchanged, like they made a deal and they're getting the raw end of the deal. Amen. Hmm? Because they made the deal for self. Amen. They made the deal for their purposes. They didn't make the deal for the right reason. So I want to just stop here and I'm going to come back, but I want to ask you, what would have been the right reason to make the deal? What would have been the right reason to surrender? To break? To live bowed before the Lord in an attitude of submission? What is the correct reason? If self isn't an acceptable motive, what is an, an acceptable reason? Because you love God. Sir? Because you love God and you want to do it for God. Where the Simeon says, because we love God, love for God, and we want to do it for Him. Because you that's, recognize the futility of self and you want to totally abandon that to pursue a new life. Because you recognize the futility. You want to quick quit that. <coughs> what other reasons? For His glory. For His glory. Because you know that the end of your own self is death. Amen. Amen. We surrender to God not out of selfish bargaining logic, but because He is worthy. And if we want His benefits, we know we don't deserve them. If we seek His blessings, we cannot expect them. If we crave His joys and pleasures forevermore, we cannot demand them. Our duty is to render our lives not because of what we'll get in this life, but because of what He's already given Amen. at the cross. Do you understand? What is the reason for our reasonable service? God's mercy. And God's mercy, if we accept it as mercy, purchases us. Meaning we do not own ourselves anymore. We do not, we are not our own. 
he says. We have been bought with a price. Therefore, what? Glorify God, Glorify God with your body. Amen? Amen? Now, we can read scriptures such as when Jesus said, whoever gives up houses, lands, etc., etc., in this life, he will receive a hundred <coughs> times more. And we would have to ask ourselves, does he speak in a quantitative sense or a qualitative sense? I think it has to be some of both, but primarily in a qualitative sense. I don't think he's saying that a selfish, narcissistic worshiper of, of, of ego and pride could come and say, well, let's see. I've got 10 acres. I need 100. Um, I'd like to donate my 10 acres to the church. And then several months later, um, <clears throat> are you an agency of Christ? Oh, good, because he said that you would give me 100 back. Do you think that that is a fair interpretation and rendering of Christ's words there? But tell me the honest truth. Do you encounter people all the time, even yourself, battling those attitudes? Where we think somehow our surrender places a mandate on God and life to give us something that we want. What is the problem with that? There is no joy through self. Self, ambition, conceit, selfishness is never a medium for apprehending joy or fulfillment. Can you process that? How do you take a gift? You reach out with hands and you draw it to yourself from the hands of others, right? So your hands are the medium for receiving. Would you agree? How do you take in a word or a song? Through your ears. Your ears are the medium for receiving into your soul thoughts, ideas, words, beauty of music. How do you take in sights? Through your eyes and smells, through your nose and taste, through your tongue, right? But how do you take in fulfillment? If you reach out with fleshly ambition, if you reach out with fleshly desires, if you reach out with the flesh, flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You may inherit chasing after the wind. You may inherit bitterness and strife. You may inherit all kinds of things. Poison, you may inherit the passing pleasures of sin for a season, but you will not ever grip true fulfillment through the flesh. So if the flesh makes a bargain with God, it's ruined at the start. Because flesh can't touch the things of God. It is like trying to catch water in a wire basket. It is impossible. Amen? Amen? It is like trying to smell through your ears or hear through your nose. It doesn't work. 
your flesh cannot receive the things of God. And so we tend to set up the things that we think we deserve or need and then to assess God and others and life based on whether we have been provided for. El Shaddai means provider. And so when we set up our equations of what our life needs, then we judge God and we judge life. And we may not say we're judging God, but that is exactly what we're doing. We judge God, we judge life, we judge others, and we say, well, I am unhappy. Why are you unhappy? Because I am not receiving the things I need in my life. But what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that equation? It assumes we know what we need in our lives. Whenever flesh is even speaking, whenever flesh is even reaching, whenever flesh is trying to apprehend, trying to get, it's a guaranteed failure. It's a guaranteed failure. So I ask you, who can receive? Now, the flesh will try to listen and say, oh, I've got to pretend those attributes so that I can finally get it. But who is the one who does receive God's pleasures, God's joy, God's fulfillment, God's kingdom, the kingdom of the Son of His love? Does the Bible not say at His right hand are pleasures forevermore? In His presence there is fullness of joy, and at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. So, who is the one who receives this joy, this fulfillment, this kingdom? You said, Helen, that you're struck by the joy of the first generation. Well, then we ought to know. Why were they happy? Because they made a quid pro quo arrangement with God, and sure enough, they got 100 acres when they gave 10. They got $100,000 when they only gave 10000 Or 1000 in that case. 100 acres when they only gave one. Excuse me. 100 times more. I'm getting it off. It's not 10 times more. You've got to keep that math for the flesh right. The calculus is always precise. Quid pro quo. So... Who is the person that receives joy in the kingdom? And why do they receive it? They find the pearl of great price and go and sell everything they have. Amen. With joy. Amen. So describe the attributes. Define the defining attributes of a satisfied, fulfilled person in the kingdom. I, I got some. Let me suggest some. Because God shows partiality, right? The Bible teaches us that God shows partiality, right? No. Oh, no, no, wait, wait a minute. It says there is no partiality with God. So the reason they're happy is because they got a, a colored striped robe, right? Hmm? Because they had a better family. A better upbringing. Because they had more intelligence or better genetics. Hmm? Because, I'm trying to think of all the, 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 the reasons that are put forth. 
uh, because they had fewer people fail them. Hmm? Uh, they never had occasion to stumble or sin. Is that why? So, define the defining attributes of the person who actually receives joy in their life. Ah! They never have hard things happen to them. They never encounter loss. They never have to face the violation of their plans or will. They live in a bed of roses with all the thorns plucked off. And uh, they just, it's rare, but whenever you find a happy person, just know they've never encountered any of the hard things you've encountered. Because if they had, obviously they would be miserable and full of contempt for God and His goodness like you are. Because the only reason Abel was happy is because you know, he had encountered some of life's hardships like Cain. But if you encounter a happy person, if you encounter someone with victory and joy, thanksgiving, faith, charity, generosity to others, if you encounter that person, just be sure that they've never encountered any of the things you've gone through. Because if they had, they would not be like that. Because otherwise, wait a minute, yeah, otherwise, their fulfilled life would really be a rebuke, a real condemnation on your hideous, black hole self-centeredness. Yeah, so that, that's not an option. So Because you've already exonerated yourself of all that. So we've got to pick something else. So, okay. Do you feel like I've pretty much defined what makes for a happy person in the kingdom of God? Oh, I think I have. I have defined what this, the person stubbornly entrenched in their will, in their perspective, in their desires, in their ambitions. That is exactly how they view someone who is blessed and joyful and victorious in the kingdom of God. So give me an alternative. Happiest people I know are the ones that have come to an unequivocal revelation that they deserve nothing but judgment. And so that anything that comes other than that is a blessing from God to rejoice in. When they encounter the mercy of God, if it cuts mercy, and no sacrifice is too much. So you're saying a profound recognition of deserving nothing but hell is the starting point for happiness. Wow. Yeah. I couldn't said it better. I couldn't have said it better myself. Give me some more. That's a great place to start. Give me some more defining attributes of someone who is happy. I think of that song that we quote a lot. says, Jesus, all for Jesus, all I am, have, ever hope to be, for it's only in your will that I am free. Amen. And that to me is the, such a simple, full, resounding resonance with me of the happiest times in my life when I come to the place of surrender like you're talking about where I, it's only in God's will that I'm, I'm free Amen. and if it's not 100% there's going to be dissonance there's going to be some room for me to to feel dissatisfied and, and entitled to something that I actually had no deservance of I would say thank you that is spot on I would say that the happiest people in the kingdom are the people for whom flesh is not the wanter, flesh is not the seeker, 
Flesh is not the receiver. Flesh is not the assessor of what's received. Nothing in their life is for their flesh. Nothing in their life is for them. It is for God's glory. I believe that the happiest people, in short, are the people who have totally cut flesh off. Who need nothing for it, want nothing for it. They are not the agent for a hungry, wounded flesh. They have crucified it. And their joy is in advancing God. His purpose, His love, His mercy, His compassion. People who are happy are unselfish people. Let me rephrase that. Unselfishness is the prerequisite for happiness. Period. Universally. You think about some of the happiest people you know and tell me that you're not tempted to describe them with the phrase, they are completely unselfish. As long as you are the agent for your flesh, you are a miserable person. Period. <laughs> and you will feel like God is cheating you, but you are cheating God. He has given you everything. His very life. In the humanity of Christ, surrendered on the cross. And yet, you are cheating him. You are robbing him. He's not robbing you. And yet, we'll be tempted to say, why isn't this happening? You know, people who live in this unhappiness, perennially, and this is something I talk about way too much, but here we go again. Perennially view their unrepented faults as circumstantially derived. They believe that if they could just change this or that, they wouldn't be as rotten as they truly are. So they want to change their job, or they want to change their church, or they want to change their spouse, or they want to change their family or parents. They want to change their surrounding because they are getting feedback that indicates they have serious flaws. But they do not want to believe that those flaws come from a yet still ensconced flesh on the throne of their lives. They do not want to see that those faults indicate a nature problem. Something that has not died, that has not been broken, and so they, they want to see that circumstantially. And they fail to see that, that their grim view of their surroundings is actually a smudge on the inside of their glass. Do you see what I'm saying? Oh, this looks so dark. Well, that's because it's spray painted, for Pete's sake, with your judgmentalism. It's frosted with your cynicism. Do you understand? It's etched with your bitterness. It's pocked with your resentment. Of course that world outside your glass looks nasty. Because you made it look nasty. You could walk into the streets of glory, the city of gold, and you'd be grumbling and complaining about how bright it was. How slippery those metal streets are. 
you'd be fretting about why everybody was focused on this lamb. Where's some focus for me? Flesh is the problem, and it's going to die. And we're not going to make a bargain with God whereby flesh finally gets what it wants. Because if flesh is getting anything, we're never happy. Flesh is going to die. Somebody said to me recently, I think I'm losing myself. Oh, praise God. I hope so. I hope you're losing everything you think you are. Because that is what is preventing you from receiving what God wants you to be. Amen. That is what is keeping you miserable. In His presence there is fullness of joy. And at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. But who gets into His presence? The humble. The humble. The humble. Those who are broken. Those who lift themselves up in pride. What is pride? What is it? It's a feeling of deservedness. Amen. What is, what is unrighteous indignation? What is the wrath of man? It is pride insulted when it doesn't get what it think it's, thinks it deserves. That's what the wrath of man is. Indignation, pride indignant over not getting what it thinks it deserves. It's forgotten what it really deserves, hasn't it? And when you adjust yourself and you become okay and resigned and at peace, living with no provision for your flesh, When you become at peace and resigned to living with your flesh dead and where all your efforts, your ambitions, your feelings, your longings are focused toward God and His glory and not yourself at all, well, that's when you're living a life of victory. And victory is just a term that describes the joy you feel when your enemy, that is your flesh, is conquered, Amen. is under your boot. And you're not going to have the victory until your flesh is under your boot, until it is conquered. Period. Amen. But when it is, its desires, its demands, its ambitions, its rights, its sense of deservedness, its offenses, its bitterness, all of it, when it is dead, and it is no longer there as a medium for even perceiving or receiving anything of life, you're going to be a happy person. You're going to be a victorious person. And there's no joy like victory. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. I think we... We just miss, we just lose sight of what it means to die. To die! To truly put that to death. Amen. Whatever you get in life that is not gotten first for the glory of God and second as something that blesses and fulfills you. Whatever you get that's not gotten in that priority is an idol. An idol that is going to make you bitter, empty, 
lonely, isolated. Amen? Everything that you get by grasping, by manipulating, everything is an idol. Everything that you get from God but for self becomes an idol. And he asks you to sacrifice it until it ceases to be an idol. Amen. Do you understand? Amen. Give it up. Okay, now it's not an idol. Now I think I can give it back to you for my purpose, for my glory, for my kingdom. Can we sing, Lord, prepare me? Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. You're